Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and we are set for another show today. I hope that you are staying warm where you are. To me, it seems like winter just drags on and on and on. I know we're still supposed to have cold weather in the middle of February, but it just feels like the snow will not go away. And I just saw a funny picture on Twitter with a snowman with knives in him with the caption, die, winter, die, the people have spoken, or something like that. And I wonder if that's how you feel, too, because that's certainly how I feel where I live. Uh, But moving right along to today's announcements uh, before we get started with our topic. First of all, my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, is now available on DVD. And you can find out the information about ordering that at um, my website, which is teachmetotalk.com. It is a super course, especially if you are a speech-language pathologist who's working with um, children in the birth-to-three population or that young preschool population, and you often wonder, why aren't my kids making more progress? It's probably because you're skipping some steps, or you're stepping at a level that's too high, or starting at a level that's too high, for a child to be successful. So I would really, really encourage you to order that course. And if you are a speech-language pathologist, you can get ASHA CEUs. I'm so excited that we're able to offer that now. And speaking of ASHA CEUs, you can now get those for any of my DVDs, for Teach Me to Talk, for Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1 and 2, and for Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia and Phonological Disorder. So that's something new that we're rolling out here in February, and so take a look at teachmetotalk.com for those details, and I'm so, so, so excited that we are able to offer that now. All right, today's topic is building attention in toddlers, and sometimes when we work with really young children, we feel like even saying the word attention span and toddler is contraindicated. You know what I mean by that? Because they don't seem to go together when we talk about attention and maintaining attention and and keeping a very young child's attention, especially when you're trying to teach them something. And so today let's talk about what a normal attention span is for a toddler. And it may be a lot shorter than you think. And then we're going to look at what research tells us is normal and and what are some things that we can do to improve attention span in toddlers. And then lastly, I'm going to just cut to the chase and give you my best advice for working on attention span, um, especially as one, two, and three-year-old little client. So let's start by talking about is normal. Now, uh, on my website at teachmetotalk.com, last week I posted an article about this, and it's the top post. It's the one more rule to extend a toddler's attention. And I did, again, some looking and gathering information because anytime I start thinking about something, I want to make sure that I what, what I know in my heart of hearts and 20 years' experience is the same as what the researchers say, and I just love it when it matches up. That's supposed to be a joke. I hope you thought that was funny. Uh, But take a look at at some of this research and and the two big pieces of information that I found that I thought were really, really applicable to those of us who work in early intervention. First of all, at a website called studydog.com, which, again, is a a website for parents and professionals who have older children, lots of study guides on here and and academic information, but I thought this was really cool. There's a graphic that lists and a post, an article that starts with normal attention spans might be a little shorter than you think. And I love that title. I love that they put the word normal in little quotes there because that's always a debatable word. But their guide, what they found or they listed to be the normal span of a two-year-old was a range from four minutes to ten minutes, okay? And then for a three-year-old, it's listed as six to 15 minutes. And I have a link 
uh, from the article that I wrote at teachmetotalk.com to that site so that you can check out that graphic for yourself. I didn't want to re repost their graphic without their permission, but I certainly felt that I could link it. So that's telling us about five minutes for a two-year-old to a three-year-old. Does that ring true with your experience? It certainly does with mine. And so after I kind of looked the blog world said about that and read some different opinions and, and that seemed to be kind of a general consensus, then I started looking at more scholarly sites so that I could find evidence-based information with uh, about typical attention spans in toddlers. And so I found a study from the journal Infant Child Development, and this was from 2008, and it reported that a toddler's attention span is variable, get this, from three to six minutes. Wow, <laughs> that's short, isn't it? Three to six minutes. But for those of us who routinely work with toddlers, I would say I agree with this, particularly if you're not doing anything to really be sure that a child remains engaged. Do you know what I mean by that? And that kind of leads to the next point. Investigators in this study, and again it was by Gartner, and it was from 2008 in Infant Child Development, they reported that the best thing that you can do for low attending infants to help them become more attentive is have an adult participate in their play. And I think that is so powerful. And that's certainly a message that should be passing along to moms and dads who say to us, oh my goodness, I think he has ADD or ADHD. I can't believe I can't get him to sit and do anything. He, he, he has just a, a terrible attention span. He's so busy. He won't sit still for anything. Our first piece of advice should always be, Let's play with them. Let's see what we can get them to do when, when we're on our game, when we are really doing everything that we can to engage his attention and keep him involved and keep him interacting. And so this certainly rings true with my experience. A really responsive, fun adult can go a long, long way to keeping a child playing and participating and hopefully learning mostly just by being there, by being involved and not phoning in participation. Do you know what I mean by that? Meaning that the child is sitting on the floor doing something and you you want to play and participate but you're still kind of tied to your cell phone or the television show or perhaps you're checking email on your laptop or you're, you know, you're playing a game on the iPad and you're kind of kind of halfway attending to what the child is doing, and hopefully we're never doing that during therapy, unless, of course, we count keeping data <laughs> when we're so involved in writing things down and checking our progress toward our goals rather than really stopping focusing on what the child is doing. And so that, that adult participation and getting on the floor and really turning off all those other distractions that we feel as the adults can go a long, long way in helping a toddler, a really young child, stay involved in what we're doing. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have children who <laughs> have short attention spans despite our best efforts, because we certainly know that we do. But our first and foremost piece of advice when we're dealing with a child who has a really short attention span is just to make sure that we're there and we're participating and we're on and we're involved and we're not expecting him to maintain attention to an activity for, you know, 25, 30 minutes without it at all. Now, that's not to say, again, too, that we won't see some children when they have highly preferred activities stay focused and, and demonstrate an ability to really um, – stay with one activity from start to finish. But when you look at what the data tells us is normal, we can't really be surprised anymore when a child wants to move on to something new after about five minutes. Um, so I want to be sure that we're always kind of keeping that in mind. And, you know, that's obvious to me, too, when I go into a daycare center or a preschool classroom and we're 
thinking about attention and, 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 you know, kind of looking at all of the children. And you'll find that it's not just our little guys with delays who have difficulty staying on task. It's every young child. So I want you to be sure that we keep that in mind. Um, as we're doing sessions, and also we have to kind of let go of the notion that we're going to go into the toddler's home or he's going to come see us in a clinic setting or our offices for a therapy session, and we're going to be able to get him to sit in one spot and do the same activity 20 minutes, and then, you know, he's not going to get up and move again until our 45 minutes or our 60-minute session is up. I mean, that's completely unrealistic. Yet so many times therapists kind of do that, don't we? We'll take our toys in, and then when the kid's up running around after 10 or 15 minutes, we kind of want to blame it on the kid and say, well, I can't keep his attention. He's got an abnormal attention span. He's, he's not attending to task, all those fancy things that we say, without really thinking it might be more normal than we think. So um, hope that information for those of you who have not really considered what normal is for a toddler, I hope that will kind of change your mind a little bit and will at least get you started thinking that, gosh, this isn't, this isn't something atypical that I'm seeing that goes along with his language delay or his delay in cognition or his fine motor delay or his sensory issues or whatever you're thinking about. It's pretty normal for a toddler to want to move on pretty quickly. All right. Let's move on to another study that I found several years ago, and this one I've written about in my therapy manual, Teach Me to Talk Therapy Manual, and if you've not read that book, if you don't have that and you are an early intervention SLP, let me kind of tell you a little bit about the wealth of information in this book. Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual really walks you through how to do this job. <laughs> if you are working with children in that birth to three or early preschool age range, and it, it takes every receptive and expressive language milestone that you could ever find on any test that we give or any kind of checklist that we're using and gives you several ideas for how to target those specific skills. Some of our little guys in early intervention, though, aren't really there yet when we get them, and they're the that we're kind of talking about today are little guys who really struggle to maintain attention to task. And so they may be children with cognitive delays or certainly children with difficulty interacting socially. And so it even takes a step back and tells you what to work on even before you get to those language milestones. And one of those early chapters in Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, is called Help Young Children Attend or well-intentioned ways we mess it up in therapy sessions. And boy, can't we mess it up. <laughs> when we do all the kind of crazy things that we've heard other people do before, and when we think, if I could just get this kid's attention, or just listen to me, he's going to make more progress. And sometimes we do kind of let the blame there on our little friends without thinking about, what can I do? What are some things? I can add to this session and interject into this dynamic that would make it easier for a child to pay attention. So this chapter from Teach Me to Talk to Therapy Manual is based on a February 2011 study from the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology, and it's a tutorial, which means that it takes a lot of research, lots of studies, and it kind of combines them and summarizes them into one big article so that time-challenged and attention-challenged, if you will, <laughs> therapists will take a minute and read this study. And this one was all about helping improve the attention in young children with autism spectrum disorders. Now, that's not to say that every child on our caseload has been diagnosed with autism, but these recommendations I found to be pretty dead on when we're talking about working with young children. And again, these are the evidence-based practice strategies that we should use uh, that researchers have found to be more effective. And a lot of this, guys, sounds so much like common sense. And when I read the, these things to you, you may have the great big duh moment where you're saying, well, I already knew that. But sometimes we don't always do what we know, do we? Even though we know these things and we could kind of recite them and we certainly probably wrote them as answers to a test when we were in grad school, 
our everyday practices may not reflect it. So let's just look at what these approaches are and let's talk about what we can do. And again, our purpose here is to increase a child's attention. And so first of all, the, the biggest recommendation from the study is that we will choose toys and activities a child likes. Now that's not earth shattering, is it? We're going to get better attention from young children when we do something they like to do. And I would add something they're good at, something that they have some previous experience with and that they have shown to be interested in before. You know, last week when I posted um, this article um, that we're using for today's show on I had a comment from a speech-language pathologist who's now moved to the East Coast, but she used to live in southern Indiana, and she worked there when I served at that area in Indiana's First Steps Early Intervention Program, and she and I got to be friends through another um, therapist. And she said, she reminded me, she said, I used to hate when I would see IFSP goals that would say something like, improve child's attention during non-preferred activities. And she kind of jokes and said, I never worked on that. I'm all about doing what the kid likes and having fun. No, we all should feel that way. And so to think that we can take something that a child doesn't like and kind of force him to do it anyway hardly ever works. And it becomes a parasol and just is not going to be conducive to a child learning anything new. And so especially when we're working with a child that we know really struggles to stay on task anyway, the first and foremost thing we should do, according to this study, is pick something you know he likes to do. And so that's, that's what we should start thinking about, too. Anytime in a session that we have a child when we're in their attention, think, is this something he even likes? If not, let's put it up, let's move on, let's find something that's more interesting to him so that he naturally is going to want to uh, pay better attention. What's the Second thing you think this study recommended, it's allow a child to lead in choosing the toys. Now, again, this drives some therapist bonkers because they think, I'm the adult here, I'm in charge here, I know what this kid needs to do to learn, we're only going to be able to pick from one of these three activities, we can't dare go outside of what I've planned for the day. And so sometimes we get so rigid as the adult in thinking this is what we're going to do today that we don't allow for these natural opportunities to arise when we could use our same strategies but with different stimuli. Do you know what I mean by that? That's kind of an academic way to say it doesn't really matter what you play with. The important thing is that you're facilitating language. And again, it, what, or speech, or whatever your goal might be. It could be a receptive language goal. You know, we're talking about expressive language or, you know, really our attention. What, whatever our goal is, one thing the study recommended was let a kid have some, some part in the decision-making and choosing what he or she wants to do. Now, this is called following a child's lead, and if you've ever heard me speak live, I talk a lot about how we sometimes mess that up, and we think that following a child's lead really means that we're just going to follow him around and just do whatever he wants to do. That's not really what follow a child's lead means in this situation. This means we're going to take what a kid is naturally already paying attention to and just go there. Or so if he's digging through your bag and he pulls out the Play-Doh, you're going to go play with the Play-Doh rather than constantly saying, no, come over here, pay attention, here's what I want to do, I want to show you this, look at this. So we naturally, or, or we, we take what the child is naturally doing and then we kind of interject ourselves into where his attention already is. And so offering choices is a great way to let a child feel like He's got lots of that power there. And, again, give him that lead. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Laura, what if I don't have anything that he likes to do? Am I just going to let him go off and look out the window or play with the vent, you know, play with the piece of fuzz flying up from the heater vent over there? Or, you know, or, are we just going to try to get the ball out from under the couch and, and that's all we're going to do? 
yeah, paying attention to. And if you feel like you've been very unsuccessful getting him to <laughs> move on to what you want him to do, you may just be better off joining him there. And, and really letting him decide, really letting him kind of take the lead in what your sessions are supposed to be about. And this is why I think that so many state programs are moving to that toy bag approach, which if you've listened to the show before, you know how I feel about that. Not my favorite approach for us to use with young children. But I think that that's why some of the the excitement about not taking toys in has been so that therapists really do our focus and instead of being about our own agenda in the session that we really get on the kids page so that we do learn to follow what they want to do and pay attention to what they want to do and and look at what's going on around them so that they can they pay better attention um, and so that that we Start there, and that's how I always think about this. I always think, especially in the beginning, and especially if I know that a child is going to have some difficulty staying on task and paying attention, I really, really, really need to let him feel like he's in charge of what we're going to play. Now, for me, a lot of the time, and especially now since I'm in my current situation with with seeing most children in office, for me that means offering toys usually a choice of two activities, and if you've watched my DVDs, you know that I'm all about those two-and-a-half-gallon Ziploc bags that a kid can see through, so I'm holding up two or perhaps even three options and letting him know what to play with. But I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I'm doing my best, and I'm on, and I'm playful, and I'm fun, and a kid still doesn't want to pick any of those two or three activities offered. He's over at the train table, or he wants to build with the blocks, or if I have the slide in there, he wants to slide. And guess what? That's okay. We have to kind of move along and still keep things going and keep things fun and still working in our therapy strategies at whatever whatever goal we're working toward while building attention. And you're, you nearly always have to stop yourself if you find yourself saying, come back over here, we're going to do this, pay attention to this, listen to me, no, 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 sit down, come on, come come back. Those kinds of kids, you almost always know that you are not following their lead. And so you have to just stop yourself from doing that, sometimes by offering enough visual choices at the beginning of an activity so they don't feel that need to kind of get up and move away from you to something else. But, But a lot of times in therapy, I'm just dropping the bags thinking that's what she wants to do. If she would rather play with this, that's okay with me because I'm still going to be able to get um, what I need from her. I'm still going to be able to think on my feet and work toward that goal that we're supposed to be addressing. So we do need to let a child take the lead in seeing what we're going to do in therapy. Other thing that happens here sometimes too is that therapists, if you're offering something to a child, they don't like to hear the word. They don't ever like to let a kid say no. And that's just wrong. <laughs> no is very communicative. It's it's very um, purposeful. And so when a child is telling you he doesn't want to do something, guess what? He doesn't want to do it. And so we do have to honor those no's. And, again, I worked with a therapist Okay, she came in, she's a, a therapist of another discipline. She's a physical therapist and seeing a little guy that I'm seeing. And this is a little guy who has significant developmental challenges, you know, in every domain. And she was saying, she, the grandmother was saying, he's shaking his head no. And, you know, Grandma and I are ecstatic about that. And the PT wasn't as happy as we were. And she said, you can't let him win. You can't let him think he has control. And I said, no, but you do have to let him know that he can communicate. And you do have to let him know that. And for this little guy, it's it's not, you know, it's a gesture. We do have to honor that a lot of the time, you know. And, again, he's not going to be able to tell his parents he's not going to bed. He's not going to be able to totally, you know, refuse to do everything all day long that they ask him to do. But when we're just picking from activity A and activity B during therapy, it really shouldn't matter to us that he doesn't want to do the first thing that we pick. We should have other things prepared 
so that we can move on. And even if he tells you no about two or three things in a row, you can't get so looped into I'm the boss here and you're going to do what I say. You know, that whole behavioristic approach, please don't do that. Um, So we do give children, again, ways for them to communicate with us, even if it's not our, our first option, and give them power in therapy and let them refuse an activity. And, again, why are we doing this? It's so that we increase their attention span. It is no fun. And a kid I don't think is learning anything beyond this lady is so mean when you make them do something that they're really not interested in. So look at offering choices and allowing a child to take that lead so that you are able uh, to get better attention. All right, let's move on. What's the third thing that the researchers recommend that we can do to get a child to stay on task and pay better attention. They recommend imitating a child's actions on objects to elicit that reciprocal play. Now, for those of you who are moms and who are not therapists, reciprocal just means back and forth, meaning you do it, the child does it, you do it, the child does it, you do it, the child does it, that beginning turn taking. And that's what conversations are. When we talk We talk, the other person listens, hopefully, (laughs) and then they talk and we listen, and then we talk and they listen, and it's just that nice back and forth. That's what conversation is supposed to be. And so for children to learn that, that acceptable pattern of responsiveness, meaning that they learn that there's a time when I listen and a time when I talk and a time when I listen and a time when I talk, that really starts back in play. And so... You know, a lot of time talking about how important it is before a kid can talk, you have to know that they can imitate actions on objects. So it's kind of the same thing. It's saying elicit attention. The adult should do what the child is doing, hopefully to captivate the child's attention and help them stop what they're doing to think, hey, she copied me. It's kind of fun. I'm going to do it again and see if she'll do it again. And they're saying that that's a nice way to build that back and forth Um, reciprocal play that we like to see. Now, sometimes, this is what I was alluding to earlier, we as therapists have messed this up in some situations. We'll hear follow a child's lead or or do reciprocal imitation, and we introduce it at times when a child has no idea or, frankly, doesn't care that we are even in the world, let alone in the same room with them, doing what they're doing. So when we are trying to get this nice back and forth going, you have to really find your environment, meaning that the kid has to see you and he has to know that you're there and care that you're there. And so you're better off to do these kinds of things in small spaces and space to space. And so if you want a child to do that where he's, he's say, he's rolling a car and you're going to get a car and roll it with him, and say, he crashes the car, and then you're going to crash your car too. If his back is, and if he's 10 feet away, he doesn't know that you're doing that too. So you're going to be down on his level, right in front of him, so that he can see what you're doing and begin to get the idea that you are copying him to do it again. And again, some kids aren't cognitively there. You really have to work to get him there. But if you have a child who is a toddler who is busy. He was understanding some words, maybe not even quite to an age-appropriate level, but he, he's moving along respectively and cognitively. This is a really effective technique. And so that's something that the researchers recommend so that we are um, imitating what the child is doing to get them to play with us and pay attention to what we're doing and stay with that activity a little longer. The other benefit of really imitating what a child is doing in play, and again, this is going even beyond, you know, this is the, the development where we start when when we're teaching a child to say words. You know, we, we want to copy what we say. Well, first he needs to copy what we do. Even before you get to that point, one thing that I like to talk to parents about when we're discussing this reciprocal imitation is, when you are doing what a child is doing, you're never working level that's too hard for him. Do you know what I mean by that? If you are copying his actions, if you are matching and balancing, as um, 
our, uh, oh gosh, I've gone blank, but who's James McDonald in his book, Play to Talk, Dr. McDonald. He talks matching and balancing. When we are doing that with the child in play, you're never going to be talking at, usually not, or certainly not playing at a level that's too difficult for the child. And so that's another reason that this strategy is so effective. And again, look at all the areas that you targeted. When, when your goal is, I'm going to do what he's doing in play with objects. You're targeting attention, which is what we're talking about today, but you're also targeting that play skill and you're meeting him where he is developmentally. You're probably, hopefully, talking at a level that he can understand. If you're both banging the cars into the wall, I hope you're saying, crash, boom, car, oh, no, oh, and lots of those little single-word labels that you're using there and that you're not talking way above where a child can understand. And again, you've kind of met him where he is, so that's your respective language piece. And then certainly by keeping play on his level and using those short little utterances that are modeled, you're also targeting expressive language, hopefully at a level he can be successful. You can see just by that one strategy all that we are targeting and hopefully successfully targeting uh, when we're working with the child at that level. So imitating what the child does to elicit that reciprocal play. That was the third recommendation from the study. All right, let's look at the fourth one. The fourth one says that we should use specific labels to address objects that a child is focusing on at the moment. And again, this is a really kind of common sense strategy. We want to talk about what the child is paying attention to so that he'll pay better attention. Common sense one one, isn't it? <laughs> we don't talk about something that happens next week or something that happened weeks ago. We keep it in the here and now. And so researchers found that labeling, simply saying an object or an event's name is much more effective than any other kind of talking to help the child maintain attention of what he's doing. Sometimes we get really stuck in... Um, just talking about, again, we say, we'll, we'll tell parents, narrate what you're doing. So if a parent is playing with the child with the block, instead of really talking about the blocks and saying words like block and build and up and down and uh-oh when they fall, they might start to say something like, oh, remember when we were at the bookstore two or three weeks ago and you, you saw these blocks? And I wanted you to come on and look at the books, but then you wanted to play with the blocks. And, you know, they're talking about something that a child has no chance of remembering. And so the researchers are reminding us here <laughs> to keep it really simple and to talk about what a child is already directing his attention to at the moment. Uh, sometimes we also get so caught up in narrating what a child is doing that we miss using those labels. And so if you are, say you're going to play with a ball for the child, you might say, oh, I see what you want to play. You found something you want to play with. Can you roll that over here to me? This will be so much fun if we roll this back and forth. How about we kick it? How about we throw it? And we might go on for, you know, two minutes without saying the word ball. And so using labels and really pulling it back to that simplest level can do a lot to help a child maintain attention. And this is so important for our little receptive language delays. And sometimes we can go on and on and on when really we should be shortening lots and lots of what we say. And so using those labels and reminding yourself of that to say the word that the child is playing with and paying attention to over and over and over and over again helps anchor his attention on whatever that object or event is. And back to my earlier point, if you are constantly trying to redirect the child's attention to something new rather than what he's already looked at, already paying attention to, you're really missing an opportunity to facilitate his language skills. And so to us as adults, sometimes this seems really, you know, kind of counterintuitive. A child is looking out the window at the garbage truck. But we think he's going to be better off if he comes down and reads the book or does the puzzle. Really, we should 
just stick to what he's doing initially and label that event and say, truck, a garbage truck. Oh, big truck. Look, the man dumps the garbage. The garbage goes in. See? In the truck. And keep it really focused on what he's already thinking about and um, paying attention to rather than getting him to move on. Researchers here with this point were also real careful to note that if you don't want a child to do something or pay attention to something, that you should get it out of the child's line of vision. And any mom knows that's just distraction. If we don't want them to play with the remote control, we should hide it, right? If you don't want them to have your iPhone, you should put it in your pocket, right, <laughs> so that he can't see it. A lot of times out of sight is out of mind. Now, we do know that we have some kids who are so persistent that they'll do anything. If they've seen you put it away, they have object permanence, they know that that item is still there, and that's okay. But for the most part, when we find that a child is visually distracted, we need to do everything we can to limit that, um, that object's ability to interfere with what we're doing. And so, again, if you want a kid to quit going to the door when you were playing, you need to move far away from the door so that he doesn't see it and he's not reminded of it and he doesn't want it. If you're the kind of therapist who, who does use an iPad and you – don't want to use the iPad yet in the session, you better not have it out on the table if you're trying to do something else. You've got to put it away so that a child doesn't see it because, again, if it's in his line of vision, he's going to want to do it. Now, this makes some moms upset because they say, oh, we've got to learn. You've got to learn to wait. You can learn, you know, that whole delayed gratification. Well, I'm still having trouble with that at 47. How about you? <laughs> so if a kid can't see it, He's much more likely not to want it. And so I love that the researchers mentioned that very common sense strategy. And again, some therapists get so blown up about being such a behaviorist with we're going to control his behavior. He's got to learn. He has to know his limits, blah, 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 blah. In the earliest phases of therapy, that is not a realistic goal. So be sure you're putting that stuff away so that a child can't see it. All right. The fifth way that they recommended that we help a child learn to pay better attention is to use prompts to elicit attention with verbal and visual cues. Now, did you hear what I said? Use prompts to elicit attention with verbal and visual cues. What does that mean? That means you're going to point and say, look, <laughs> how funny is that? How often do you do that? But don't you love that a study confirmed what, that you something you do all day long, if you want to get a kid's attention, you tell him where to look and you show him because you're going to point and have him, have him again, give him reasons and give him ways and show him and tell him what you want him to pay attention to. And so a lot of times we're just better off to really sharpen how we cue a child versus all of these other strategies that we, we could do. I like to use a lot of tapping and pointing, too. If I have a child that maybe, say, we're playing with, um, oh, I don't know anything, baby dog, and they've started to lose their attention. And, and again, this is when it's early. It's not like, you know, 25 minutes and it's time to move on. But say after a couple minutes, they are starting to stray. A lot of times, obviously, something that, that they can hear in addition to see. And so that might mean that I would take the bowl and the spoon and stir it really, really, really loud before we're going to feed the baby doll again. Or say if I want the kid to give the baby doll a drink from the bottle, I'll, instead of just saying, you know, get the baby a drink and all the other things we do, I might really tap on that bottle. And that tapping, oh, lots of kids are so intrigued by that by that fingernail sound on a toy. And so use those kinds of things. And the researchers, again, found that of all the 12 studies that they included in this tutorial, the most effective cue to elicit attention was really combining the word look with a point. So if it's something you're already doing, make sure you're using that. Talk to parents about that too. Yeah, they may not know that. And sometimes we, we, we think parents know. Surely they're, she's doing, surely mom knows that. Surely she's doing that. Sometimes we need to state the obvious so that they realize that they're not doing something as simple as saying, look, look, let me show you, um, to get a child's attention. The last thing that they recommended to improve attention was to reinforce attention. And, again, that can be either naturally or artificially. 
Now, the most natural way to reinforce attention with a toy, excuse me, is that he's done something you want him to do, let him play with it or let him put what comes next. If he has paid enough attention to sign or say whatever that activity is and has requested that, we need to let him do it for just a you know, not 25 minutes without interrupting him, but just for, you know, a minute or so so that we have naturally uh, or we have let the natural consequence take place. So if he's requested car by either saying or signing or pointing or whatever your your goal is there, you need to let him play with a car for a few minutes. And because, again, that's rewarded what he's done. That artificial reinforcement of attention that's for like giving a kid a cookie because he said something. Now, that would be totally different than if he were requesting a cookie and you gave him a cookie. That's still a natural consequence. But let's say you're trying to get him to do something like um, cut with scissors and he does a snip and a snip and then you give him a smarty to kind of reward him for that. All right. That's like giving a prize or whatever. And I'm not opposed to that if that's all you can do that works. But if we can reinforce that attention with what would naturally come next, that makes a little more sense to me. Some people do the whole, um, you know, get a sticker at the end of the session if you've been really good or, um, oh, you know, choose something from the big prize bucket. That's okay if you have children that respond to that. Toddlers aren't usually into that yet. That usually is the strategy that's more effective with preschoolers. So we are really better off reinforcing as we go. For a lot of our little guys, so they could care less about a sticker or, you know, a piece of candy or whatever. They need that little feedback to their body. So for our sensory seekers, we might be better off you know, giving some hugs or some squeezes or some firm little pats on their on their backs or on their legs or high fives or anything like that really um, reinforce attention with them physically because that's what's like that movement piece or um, any kind of you know your kids that are really like that vestibular feedback those are going to be the kids that we kind of swing around in the air because they like that. But, again, they've got to make the link with, I did this, and then she did that, so that they really know what they did to get all that. I think that those natural consequences where you're letting the child play with whatever cool, fun toy that you're using or having a snack or or anything that would be more of a natural consequence would, would be great. But if you've got to reinforce that attention artificially, so be it. You're going to do anything you can do <laughs> to make it easier for that child to pay attention to you. All right, so we've looked at what the research said about what was normal as far as in the, uh, the, the time span for attention span. And then we've looked at a study that gave us those evidence-based strategies that said these are the things that have been found to be more effective in improving attention. Let me break it down a little bit more and give you the day-to-day reality way that we should do these things too. My best strategy, and again, beyond simply being there, beyond me being fine and totally into playing with the child and him being the only thing that's on my radar, you know, really focused on what we're doing, we're both playing together. I'm not so distracted by talking to mom or keeping data or thinking about the next client or what I'm going to get at the grocery store. All of that that we all do. But when we are, when I'm real, when we are and when I am really, really focused on what we're doing, that's our number one thing. Secondly, we're going to do all those things that the study just recommended. Let the child pick the toys, do what we know he likes. Give him some cues like look and let me show you and we're going to give him some of that feedback that we know he likes, whether that's playing with something uh, that he's picked or whatever he wants to do. Beyond doing all of that, my best strategy for helping a toddler learn to kind of stretch that attention span is what I'll call the one more rule. And I bet you do this too, but you may not have thought about it in this way. This means that when I feel like I'm about to lose the attention, I'm just going to try to get him to do one more 
of whatever it is that we're doing before he can leave. So if we are reading a book, I might just want him to read or look at one more picture in the book. If we are doing potato heads, I'm saying, and he's put on the hat, and he's done the shoes, and we've done the eyes, and then he's done, I might say, oh, come on, one more, one more, one more. That's two nose. One more, one more, nose. And so, again, you're not telling him that he's got to sit for 15 more minutes or that he's got to put on the nose and the teeth and the arms and the ears. (laughs) You're just saying one more. And I've found that one more rule or that one more time, whatever you want to call it, is so effective because kids learn, okay, she really is going to let me move on. I'm just going to try it. And it does kind of get them in the habit of being a little more compliant. You're going to ask them to do it, and they, they do what you've asked them to do. So, again, when I'm talking to a parent, I call it the one more rule. If we are doing the racetrack and they're ready to put that up, I might try to see if they can do it one time before we put it away. So our, our key here is just one more. You can fudge a little bit, and after they've done one, and if they seem to like it and aren't ready to just bolt, then you can do the, okay, one more, one more. And sometimes kids will buy that. You have to be careful with that. If you have somebody, you know, laying on the floor crying, pitching a that's not the time to use the one more rule. It's before. It's before you get before they're completely running away, before they're bopping you in the face, before they're screaming, you know, any any kind of real negative thing, you want to do it um, before you get to that point. And, again, this isn't something that will result in, you know, this week he did one piece of the puzzle and next week he's going to do all nine. It doesn't work that way. But over time, a child really does learn. I'm gonna just, I'm gonna put this one in, and we're gonna, we're gonna just do one more, and let's just do one more, and it really does work to build attention over time. And it is a lot better than the alternative, which is gonna force the kid to do, you know, 100%, 200%, 400% more than he would have done on his own. That doesn't work. You know, if you – and let's kind of break that math down. Let's say that you were um, – oh, let's say you're playing like that Candyland toddler game and the shapes are coming out, and he's matched two shapes before he's ready to just put it up and be done. And you might say to a child, one more, one more, and you're going to get into do – one more there. All right, that's like a 50% more than he would have already done, okay, because you had two there and half of two is one, and you've got to do one more, so that's 50%. You get that math. So you get him to do one more piece after that. Okay, that's 100% improvement over what he would have done. Think about it in those terms rather than I took a child who wanted to do two pieces and I, I, I forced them to do all 10 or 16 or how many ever shapes there are there. That's totally unrealistic, especially if you're just beginning with a child or even for a child for whom attention is a real issue. This is kind of a chronic uh, red flag for him. And so you can't do that where you are making him make, you know, just unrealistic. Your expectations are unrealistic where he, he wanted to put in two pieces, but no, I made him put in 12 when he was kicking and screaming the whole time. I don't care. You know, again, we've got to kind of let go. So look at your progress differently with that. Even a kid who would do three pieces or four pieces, you know, the next week it may be four to five pieces. And the week after that, you know, over time you're going to build that that six measured again really, really gradually. You're not going to get it all in one week. The other thing that I think kids like when I'm doing the whole one more, one more, I'm holding up my finger like a number one, so they can see it. And I've really noticed that some of my little friends, when they're about to be done, when they are feeling like I've about had it with you, sometimes they'll hold up a one to me like I'm just going to do one more. Do you hear me? (laughs) And I love it when a kid does something like that, okay, because they're telling me I know that I'm at the end and I know you're going to say one more, and I'm telling you right now this is all I can do. So they're just doing one more, one more. Sometimes a kid will really understand this 
the on you and kind of pull a psychological move himself so that you're giving him one Teddy Graham and after that one he's you're trying to put it up and he's holding up one like one more one more and I love it when that happens because that lets you know that a child really understands and they get it and they're really using that same strategy back on you and so it it again is a real cognitive development and you know that they master that they really understand what that means. Another thing I really do to extend a child's attention span or the amount of time you spend on one activity is to take full advantage of cleanup time. And if you've been to any of my courses or if you've watched Teach Me to Listen and Obey 2, that DVD, you know how I try to work as much therapy into cleanup time as the actual activity itself. And I can get more from a kid during cleanup than we did while we were actually playing with the activity. So what does this look like? This means if you put the pieces in a puzzle you and, and then it's ready to run away and you've done your whole one more, one more, and you've gotten maybe another piece or two out of that. Then you say, okay, great, let's clean up. Now, during cleanup time, at the beginning, you may have to do a cleanup routine like singing that darn cleanup song from Barney. You may have to do that where your only goal there is for the child to help you clean up. And for some of our children, this is a huge benchmark. Just as they would stack and put the pieces back into a bag. I mean, don't you have some little friends that you shout hallelujah on the day they finally do that? <laughs> They've never done anything purposeful like that before. And so for some of our little guys, just getting them to own Put the pieces back into the bag is a really big deal while you're singing the cleanup song. Sometimes we'll get little guys that try to sing with us during that, and that is great. At the beginning, you may have to do a kind of hand over hand. So you're singing, you know, and as happily as you can do it while helping your little friend put those pieces in the bag, that's what you can do. And so that may last, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And in my mind, we still stayed on that activity. I've still gotten him. You know, if I think of a play routine from the beginning, a middle, and an end, I've gotten him to do the ending part where he would not have normally done that. He would have normally run away. So I have increased his time on task because he stayed with me until the end and got that completely put away. And, again, back to my Ziploc bags. After we've gotten every toy in there, we have to zip it on bag. And for some kids, again, they're going to be able to do it lickety-split and you move on. Our little guys with fine motor challenges, it's going to take them another 30 seconds or so maybe. And you're talking about it and you're saying, Loop, and you're, you're doing your hand over hand if they need that physical help with their fine motor skills. Your OT will love you because you are working on that very functional self-help skill of being Maybe a kid, you know, has not really, that pincer grasp is not firmly established and he needs a more functional way to practice that. Maybe they're working on strengthening and, and that kid really needs some additional opportunities to work on that fine motor strengthening component. So you've extended that task. That time that you've spent on that puzzle hasn't been just about putting the pieces in. You've also encompassed the time We've had him clean up, hopefully, again, on his own, and then do the whole completing the routine, which for me would be closing the bag. When you get a kid beyond this point, when you're really working on receptive language, too, you can give some really complex directions during this time. So then you're working on that whole receptive language piece. If you're doing a puzzle, it may be cleaning up one or two pieces of the puzzle at a time. Certainly, you're going to start really simply with something like, where's car, clean up car, and then find choo-choo, put choo-choo in, and so they're following these directions too. Eventually it's going to be something like, you know, get the plane in the boat. Now find, you know, the car in the truck where they're following a two-step direction, holding those two pieces of information there in their little working memories. If you have that are further along than that, you can use an object function. You can say something like, find the one that goes in the water. Which one flies? Clean up the one that flies. So they're really having to listen to you with that same puzzle. And, again, you've extended your uh, therapy time, even through cleanup time. When the kid kind of thinks, I am done, we're not in something else, 
you're still working on your goals and you're still, again, keeping his attention focused. So don't waste cleanup time. Keep cleanup time in there. And when I think about attention to task, again, I'm always thinking about what's the beginning of this play, what's the middle of this play routine. You know, that's usually when you're actually playing with the toy. And then the ending always, always for me encompasses some level of participation where the child is helping me complete that activity. Now, if you're at something big, like, say, the blocks, um, and you, you're obviously not going to put them back in a container, but you can still put them against the wall. And kids really do like that, and I like that it helps with transitions. And I like that, it, again, it helps with attention in that kids learn, I've got to finish this one thing before I move on to something else. If you're, at, like, in my office with the train table, you know, that's so big, it just stays out. Even then, I'm still having kids do something that tells me that's the end of the activity. I have them put some pieces back in the drawer. If we have destroyed something in the course of playing, say we've broken part of the track or the trees are down or something like that, I still say, let's clean up choo-choo. Choo-choo's are all done. Let's put them, you know, put them away. I'm saying something that, that lets them know, oh, oh, yeah, I've got to finish this up. This is the end of this task. And I think that kind of activity goes a long, long, long way to increasing a child's attention span and, you know, total mess or, or that you're spending on an activity or task completion. You know, that would be a great way to word it if you were thinking, how can I document this? How can I say that he's making progress? Even if our, our same time is still two minutes per toy, but you've added that minute or two cleanup on there, you've made great progress on that attention to task and, and task completion. So those are the kinds of words that you might be able to put in your documentation. And they're certainly the kinds of things that you need to talk to moms about and you need to say, listen, his attention is better. And I know that it looks like to you that when we were playing play today, we only got out one color and we only made things before he wanted to put that away or, you know, move, to get down from the table. But look at what happened when he wanted to get down. First I said, let's make one more thing. And remember, you know, we made a ball. And then you say, and then I had him help me clean up. And remember how we did that? He had to put all the photo back in the container. He had to put the cookie cutters back in my bag. He had to put the top on the Play-Doh container and then put that in the bag and then he had to zip the bag. And look, that's another two minutes before he got down and moved on. So you're explaining that to moms and so that they really understand, hey, she's right. That was part of that overall play routine and, and he's doing better. He didn't just get mad at her and run away screaming. So you have to talk about those two and talk about how even those little changes, those little tweaks, and again, the kid didn't do it on his own. He did it because you were skilled enough to say, you know, all the things that you did with the one more time or, you know, one more, one more. And then you still extended it beyond that with cleanup time, but you, he didn't do it on his own, but he still did it. And my point is you need to make sure that mom understood why he did it and more importantly than that, she needs to understand how to do it at home. So what can moms and dads do? They can do the same kinds of things with cleanup time as you do if they're playing something with their child. They could even implement something like, you know, if they have a, a kid who likes a lot of books, he, you know, mom or dad need a little basket there so they can put the books in the basket, you know, before they leave. If they've been playing with Legos before, you know, before they're going to go take a bath. You know, really talk to moms and dads about having a child learn how to put the Legos back in the plastic bin or whatever, you know, they're using there. Or let's say they're ready in their bedrooms in the morning and they've you've gotten them dressed. You could have the child learn to put the pajamas in the dirty clothes hamper or throw one back in the crib so you can wear them again another night or two. Anything like that is really learning to extend attention to for a really young child, but we don't always think about it in that way. So give moms and dads really concrete ways to work on this. Tell them that you're working on attention. Tell them that task completion is a part of the task. It's a part of the play routine. It's a part of the daily routine. Whatever you, verbiage you want to use there, 
so that they understand uh, what your overall goal has been. Okay, I love talking about this topic today. I hope you learned something new, thought about something in a different way, found a better way to explain it to parents. That's the reason I do this show every week, and so I hope it was uh, good for you today. Thanks so much, and if you want to leave me feedback, I'd love to hear from you on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page, or you can always email me, Laura, at teachmetotalk.com. Thanks so much. Have a great week, and we'll be back soon. Bye-bye.